0: 1 Timothy chapter 6 this evening, we are back in our study of the pastoral epistles. It's been a couple weeks uh, with travel, and then, uh, just then uh, we preached something a little bit different last week uh, since we've been in this study. But we are making our way through the pastoral epistles, and we are now in the last chapter of the first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we have seen uh, much in, the, in this study, I believe. I hope you have found this to be beneficial and fruitful, I too have been really encouraged by what these scriptures have to say to us. These are essentially the doctrines of the church which Paul is seeking to pass on to Timothy as he is somewhat taking the reins in the New Testament church. We've said before that Paul is speaking to him almost as if he is a military commander speaking to a younger officer. Giving him his mission. And here you can see it. These are Paul's, we might even say, dispatches from the front lines. Hey, Timothy, here is what I have endured, what I have learned, what God has shown me. And here's how I can best prepare you as you too go to the front lines of ministry. As you lead the church. These are essentially his marching orders. You can see it. Uh, the word charge is mentioned seven times in this first letter to Timothy alone. And each time it carries with it that sort of weight as a command from a military officer. It has, it's, it's supposed to invoke that idea, that image in your head. He's giving him his charges, his mission statement, you might even say. He's preparing him for the conflict. We saw that in chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, verse 18, he writes that very clearly, where Paul says, holding faith in a good conscience which some have put away. That's not my verse, it's verse 18. (laughs) Excuse me. Verse 18 of chapter 1. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And that idea, that image should sort of guide and sort of show us how to read this entire book. He's charging him to, as he says there, guard this faith. Verse 19, holding faith. Keeping it, guarding it, securing it as he is ministering in Ephesus. He's holding, as he says later in chapter 3 verse 9, this holding the mystery of the faith. This mystery of the faith, the pure doctrine, the sound doctrine of God. This is what he is uh, being charged with. And he's writing here as this army commander, so to speak, giving his battle plans, his instructions to Timothy. Timothy. You can see it throughout this. It's sort of like that, the movie D Day when the, the soldiers are charged with holding off this bridge and they have that command that echoes in the, the general's or the co- captain's head hold until relieved. You can kind of see that in Paul's writing. Timothy, hold until relieved. Hold this line. And this is what Timothy was charged to do. And such, by this, he would uh, glorify God. By steeping in this gospel but also as we're going to see here in chapter 6 by fortifying his church in the faith. I think that's what he's doing throughout the letter is giving him fortifications uh, and especially here though in chapter 6 I think he does that. The word fortify literally means to secure or surround or to strengthen with defensive reinforcements. And you can see that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is fortifying Timothy's faith so that he then could fortify the church's faith. So that he could surround his church with the the proper defenses they would need as they are battling the false doctrines that are all around them. That are surrounding them. That are uh, afflicting this early church. And the cool thing is, is that it wasn't just Timothy that is being enlisted in this conflict. We said at the beginning that, yes, these are called pastoral letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. But they're not just for pastors. They're for everyone in the faith, everyone in the Christian faith. And we are all enlisted in this conflict. In this sort of uh, engagement with with the enemy, with the false truths of the world. We are all engaged in that conflict. H.A. Ironside, he says in his commentary on this letter that there is no discharge in this war. We are all enlisted for life. We are all enlisted in this war, in this conflict. And we are all given the charge, just like Paul, Timothy was from Paul, to hold until we're relieved, Hold this faith. Hold this mystery of the gospel close. Because this is what matters. This is what lasts. So here, very quickly, in this, le- in this last chapter of this first letter, I think we see three uh, really essential areas in which Paul highlights as he seeks to fortify Timothy's faith, so that also Timothy could fortify the faith of his church as they live for Christ. So first of all, verses 1 through 5 in our text, chapter 6, I think we really see uh, less about fortifying your fidelity, Fortifying your fidelity. Look at these verses, verse 1 through 5 of chapter 6. Paul writes, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit these things teach and exhort so now here he is opening this last chapter as he's addressing a very key relationship in roman culture of course that it being the relationship between slaves and their slave owners here that's essentially what servants means there's kind of no escaping that reality it means bondmen or slaves that's what that word means and of course this is a very acceptable part of Roman society. In fact, one historian estimates that half of all the Roman population were slaves. It was a large part of the society. This the way this culture was working. And the socio-economic conditions led to this reality. And you can see, as Paul writes, he is not addressing the system itself, which we would know to be wrong under the auspices of the gospel. What he's writing here, he's writing about the relationship of those who are redeemed slaves as they are continuing in their work. He's relaying a truth here that's applicable in all walks of life, but he's specifically addressing these Servants. And I think he really wants to show how this servant master relationship is transformed by this gospel, by this mystery of faith, by this, as he says in verse 3, by this doctrine which is according to godliness. So here he writes and he's talking about believing masters versus unbelieving masters. You can see exactly what he's saying. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved. Really, essentially what he's writing in both of these verses is that regardless of those for whom you are working for, it doesn't matter. You are owing them service. You owe them service as you are owing them your work. Those in this station were charged to give respectable service. As he says there, do them service in verse 2. He was charging them to give that type of service regardless of who was ruling over them. Whether they were serving a master who wasn't familiar with the faith. Or whether they were serving one who was. It didn't matter. They were to show them due respect, obedience, submission. And yielding them and serving them zealously. This is what they are owed, whether they are a brother in Christ or not. This sort of went against the fray, so to speak, in this idea of servanthood. Why? Because there were many in this day that were preaching this idea that the gospel frees them to be insurrectionist, That frees them to rebel. That frees them to do exactly what they want to do. But here Paul is writing that even their servanthood, their working ought to be conditioned by the gospel. Conditioned by what the gospel says. Which frees them to serve and to work regardless of the circumstances. You can see that. And Paul here is writing that Christ here is sufficient. Whether you have an unbelieving master or whether you don't. Christ is sufficient in all of those circumstances. And Timothy's ministry was to care for them right exactly where they were. Timothy charged them. Care for them exactly as they are and right where they are. And this is, I think you see, what the gospel does. The gospel as it says, uh, let's see, we're, uh, look at verse 3. Paul writes, If any man teach otherwise, and consents not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. He's writing here and he's talking about the fact that this gospel which you, Timothy, are charged with preaching does not beget disrespect or contempt for anyone regardless of who they are, regardless of the moral status of the one who is over you. It doesn't allow or breed contempt for them. The gospel engenders something much different. Even believing slaves weren't allowed or weren't permitted through the gospel to usurp their master's authority. The Christian faith is not an insurrectionist program. It's not what the gospel engenders. It's not what the gospel preaches. It's the freedom of it. It's freedom to endure wrongs with forbearance and fortitude and faith. With As Jesus even writes in Matthew chapter 5 with meekness and patience because he says the meek will inherit the earth. As we were talking about this morning, it's God's prerogative for justice to dispense judgment for the wrongs that are afflicting his children. That's God's prerogative and position, not his children's. We cannot take matters into our own hands. And I think this is exactly what Paul is teaching. That this sound doctrine which he is charging Timothy to to preach and to teach. It breeds humility and devotion and deference. It doesn't stir up a revolution. Look what he says in verse 2 again. Let them not despise them because they are brethren. But rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved Partakers of the benefit. Or even verse 1 again. Let them serve their own masters worthy and count them worthy of all honor. That the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. You can see how he's writing. It's not something which teaches revolution. It actually tends towards peace and patient endurance. Endurance. And he says here, teaching otherwise, verse 3, teaching any other way actually reveals that you have a disregard for the truth. You can see teaching otherwise, it reminds me of what Paul writes elsewhere in Galatians where he talks about preaching another gospel. And he says there multiple times in that first chapter, if any man preaches another gospel, he says, let them be accursed, That's how strong he is on this gospel. It's so serious that if anyone tries to preach anything differently, let him be accursed. That's how strong he is in this truth. As we've looked at, what is he battling? He's battling these Gnostic teachers. Gnostic teachers uh, that were sort of growing this idea that we would know it as Gnosticism. They weren't calling it that then. But that's what they were battling. These ideas that there was some sort of mystic truth that we had to figure out in order to become true believers and true Christians. And here he says, these who are teaching otherwise, they're proud, he says, verse 4. Knowing nothing but doting about with questions and stripes of words. Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. He doesn't mince words. Paul is not one for mincing words ever in his letters, and here he doesn't do that again. He is very blunt. These other teachers that are uh, stirring up strife, stirring up questions, as he says elsewhere, ministering speculations. They don't know anything (laughs) of what they're talking about. They're doting about, he says, with questions, knowing nothing. (laughs) They were twisting this ministry of the faith into a scheme for gain. You can see it. He says they're preaching this truth. He says, verse 5, supposing that gain is godliness. These Gnostic teachers were totally rejecting these notions of submission and surrender and meekness. Knowing that Jesus is our victory by supposing something else, by supposing that they were responsible for it. And then they were declining from this idea. They were literally declining from the faith by teaching otherwise, by teaching other doctrines. And I love verse 5, how he describes these teachers. Because look at it again, notice, notice it. He says, they have perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is Godliness. These who were supposing that this idea that uh, gaining, uh, gaining wealth and such success, affluence, and influence uh, is what is, uh, what is defining true godliness. I love how he says they are actually destitute. <laughs> These who are supposing that they are gaining and gaining a lot. They are actually so poor. They have no idea how poor they are. Because they are totally rejecting the truth. They see themselves as rich, but they're puffed up. They know nothing. They're proud. They don't have the truth in them. So literally, they are actually destitute. They aren't rich at all. They don't know the truth. They've twisted it. They've lost it. They've declined from it. Here, this is what Paul is writing to Timothy. Fortify your fidelity in living for the truth. But next, look at verse 6. 6 down through verse 10, we have our second lesson in the text, which is fortifying your finances. Look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation in a snare and unto many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So here Paul is writing about another menacing terror which the church is supposed to fight, greed. He's talking about it very clearly. Your greedy greedy lusts after gain, after success, after influence. After, he says, the love of all money. It brings nothing but evil. It brings nothing, as he says in verse 9, but destruction and perdition. It brings on your own ruin. You see, many of these... Teachers here in this day were cloaking these pursuits after wealth and affluence and influence under pious and religious robes. Sounds really familiar to today, doesn't it? These who are preaching these false gospels are pretending themselves to be religious and faithful when really they're nothing, they're knowing nothing except the own um, sort of prosperity of their own name. And here he's talking about these very individuals. They sound good. They sound uh, like they're teaching what is good and it sounds nice. But he says to Timothy, they are only drowning men. They are men who don't really know the truth. They don't really have it. And they're actually spelling their own destruction. These, as he says in verse 9, but they that will be rich... Literally that means these men who knew nothing other than a pursuit of wealth. It was their chief end. It was sort of their driving and their constant thought. It was something that was motivating all of their actions. It wasn't just about faith or teaching. It was about gaining for themselves. Again they were ascribing to this idea that gain is what is godly. And they were putting themselves in this trap. What's the trap of a pursuit of a love of money? That there's never enough. You will never reach a point in which you have enough. It's that famous J.D. Rockefeller quote. When is there enough? One more dollar. The man who at that time had uh, what would be in our day billions of dollars. One more. There's never enough in that pursuit. This love of money is never ending It's never enough, it's never something on which you can uh, go away from. And there you can really see that wealth itself and this love of of money as a driving pursuit, as a constant thought. That's actually the enslaving reality. That they are the slaves, they aren't free men, they are the bondmen. They are the slaves. They are the destitute ones because they don't have the truth. They don't have what the gospel can give them. And it puts them in bondage to the world. But also more seriously in verse 10. It puts them in jeopardy of losing their faith. Look again verse 10. For the love of all money is the root of all evil. Which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith. And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's a foolish goal. As he says, with many sorrows, or in verse 9, which drown men in destruction. It's self inflicted drowning. By putting yourself on this pursuit of wealth as a driving reality, it dooms you for failure when worship or when wealth becomes what you worship. And that's the thing about riches, as he's going to write about later on, that it makes an awful God. Wealth makes a terrible God, it makes a terrible deity to worship. Why? Because it's uncertain. Look at verse 17. Look what he says at the end of the chapter. He says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. But he says, But in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Wealth makes a terrible God. Why? Because it's uncertain, it's unreliable. It's not something that we can count on that will always be there. Earthly prosperity vanishes as quickly as it comes. It's not something that we can count on to always be there. Look at this verse. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23 is a good verse. 23 verse 4. Look at this. It lines up with what Paul is talking about here. Proverbs 23 verse 4, or excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 4, 23, 4 says, labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly away as an eagle toward heaven, (laughs) is that not the truth? (laughs) It does seem like money sometimes takes sprouts wings and flies away. But exactly what Solomon is there saying is what Paul is saying. That you cannot trust them. They fly away. They are uncertain. They are unreliable. They won't always be there. I think about those in, uh, in the 20's who endured the great depression. Those who uh, thought they had a lot. Woke up one morning and they realized that they had nothing. Or those even in our own day in the 2008 when sort of the the bubble burst so to speak. So many thought that they had securities for the rest of their lives. And then all of a sudden that wasn't the reality anymore. It should have shown us, all of us, how fickle and frail these securities really are. That they're not really securities at all. That they're uncertain. That they're unreliable. They don't make good gods. They have shoddy foundations. And that's the whole point that Paul is making here. That no amount of wealth can buy you eternity. No amount of riches that you gain here can bring you any nearer to heaven. And if you think that is the case, that you, as he says, are destitute. And he says here, verse 5, From such things withdraw thyself. Flee these things. Fly away from them. Do not participate in them. Do not have any interest in them. Withdraw yourself, Timothy. Because the ministry of the gospel is utterly opposed to all of these sort of base pursuits after wealth and influence and affluence. Timothy's overriding aim here was to be have an ever increasing satisfaction in the gospel of God. Look at verse 6. He makes it clear. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Timothy, this is your truest wealth. This is your truest gain. That you find Christ to be your gain. That you find Christ, as he says elsewhere to the Colossians, to be your all and in all. Let me read that verse actually to you. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Colossians chapter two verse one. Let me, get, let me get there really quick. Colossians two one says this: For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, you talking about the Colossians and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and into all riches. Of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can see what he's talking about here to these that are of the faith. Your truest riches, your truest inheritance is only as you invest in the gospel of God. Which have your true uh, treasures Treasures of wisdom and of knowledge and of faith. This, Timothy, this is the life you are to preach, that you are to live. But I love too, again, notice what Paul does. He flips the Gnostic teacher's uh, uh, phrase on its head. Look look at verse 5. He says, they are teaching supposing that gain is godliness. And then he flips it. He says, the reality is, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's even more than what they suppose. What they uh, suppose is true. All of our truest needs are found and sustained and supplied uh, in Christ. Our content, all of our wanderings and pursuits after wealth are contented as we find our treasures in Jesus. Jesus. And what he can offer us. And what he can give us. And here this is what he's charging Timothy with. Find your contentment in Christ. Find your richest and your truest gain in him. Because he is a stable security. He is not uncertain. He is not like the wealth of the world which sprouts, rings, and flies away. He is always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Timothy, you can always rely on this foundation. It's not unsteady. It's eternally stable. Look at what he says in verse 19. 1 Timothy 6, 19. He says, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation. Against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. This is Timothy's charge. Realize that this pursuit after wealth is such that debilitates and destroys. It's self-inflicted drowning. Our truest wealth is in Christ. But I want you to see too, verse 18, that Paul is writing to such that perhaps might have been very affluent. But notice what he says, what they are to do with their wealth. He says, verse 18, that they do good. That they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. You can see he's writing here that wealth in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's not something to be resistant of as if somehow the poor are more spiritually close to heaven than the rich. Again, you can see that's not what he's saying. It's those who are pursuant of it as their driving force. They're loving it above all other loves. It's their constant thought. And he says here that those who have been blessed financially should strive to do good. Be rich, not just in uh, financial securities, but he says rich in good works. They should remember, as he says in verse 7, remember who gave them this financial security in the first place. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. My dad has this uh, common saying, that which you might have heard too, that you never see a U-Haul following a hearse. <laughs> you can't carry anything with you out of this world, as many as or as much as those early Egyptians strive to do it by putting all kinds of in, exorbitant treasures in their pyramids with them. What are they now? They're artifacts in a museum. Or they're collecting dust and rot and rust. They couldn't bring anything with them. It was God who gave them all of that wealth. They were successful only because God made them so. If God has blessed you financially, even if he's blessed you with how you are now, your security right now is not because of you. It's because God has given it to you. He has blessed you with it. He is the giver, uh, as he says in verse 17, He has given us richly all things to enjoy. He's the giver of it, He's the sovereign one over it. Everything that we gain in this life is temporary, everything that He gives us is a blessing. And such that reality, Paul is writing here, that reality is what can drive you towards generosity. Drive you towards, as he says in verse 18, to be rich in good works. This is how we fortify our finances, by seeing them not as something we possess and cling to and have to strive to adhere to and pursue after. It's something which God gives us to be generous with, as he says, to distribute in verse 18. And such is what Timothy was told to do himself. Not just with physical finances. This is Timothy's ministry. Timothy you've been given as he says in verse 20. The good deposit. Keep that which has been committed unto you. And you distribute it too to this church. Distribute you these riches of Christ with your entire life. But then look at verse 11. We see the last lesson in our text tonight. Which is fortifying your faith. Look at verse 11 down through 16. Paul writes. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. And follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called. And hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Here, Timothy writes that, or Paul writes to Timothy, flee after those things just mentioned, these sort of base, lower pursuits, and follow He says, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Flee, follow, then verse 12, fight after these things. This is the campaign in which you, Timothy, have been enlisted. In which you are also enlisting your church. It's a campaign to flee these things. Flee the things which the world promotes and strives to teach you and indoctrinate you. And flee after those things and follow after God and fight for this faith. Contend for it. Persist in it. This is what following God looks like. This is what it looks like to fortify your faith. To flee these things. Follow after these things. And fight for the faith. You do it best. As he says there. When he writes in verse 12. By laying hold on eternal life. And really what he means by that phrase there. Is live in this reality. Live in the reality of eternal life. Given unto you. That's what the Christian life is. Eternal life isn't a, a, it's not a reward or a prize for faithful living. It's actually the reality that produces and that is most conducive for faithful living. Living in the reality that because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, we now have everlasting life. John 3.16 is most evident of that. But it's the whole scripture's. He has given us eternal life. Lay hold on it, live in it, steep in it. May you never be living outside of it. Because eternal life is your reality. And Timothy, that is what will produce faithful living. That is what will fortify your faith and the faith of your church. That this good deposit, this mystery of faith in Jesus Christ gives us an eternal inheritance. And he says there, verse uh, 11, no, excuse me, yeah, verse 11. He says, O man of God. I love how he calls Timothy that. This young pastor, this young preacher, he calls him out here and says, you are a man of God. Timothy, you are God's representative As you are preaching to this church, as you are teaching the gospel, you are God's representative voice in this church. He was in the service, as he says in verse 15, of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And such should make him serious about this office. Such should make him serious about this mission and this message that he was entrusted to share. This is the weight of all of our callings. Yes, we, Pastor Nathan and I, have been called to preach the word especially. But we have all been given the calling to live in the service of this King of kings and Lord of lords. We have all been given the gift of laying hold and living in the reality of eternal life. That is all of our charge. That is all our duty. Like Timothy, we are God's ambassadors we stand in place of him here on this earth our message is not our own he has entrusted his message to us look at verse 20 he says that to timothy "O timothy keep that which is committed to thy trust avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called Keep that, hold that, keep that which is committed unto you, the gospel, the mystery of faith, the truest and goodest news in the world, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Timothy, hold on to that. Keep it close. Keep it close to you. That's your message. We aren't at liberty to alter this message or augment it in any way. We can't change it. We can't try and make it more palatable to some people and to other people. This is the message we are called to preach regardless of who is before us. And he says there, verse 20, that's exactly what these false teachers were striving to do. They were striving to change the message. They are striving to alter it. That word science there in verse 20 is literally the Greek word gnosis. Which we get the ideas of Gnosticism from. They were confusing the faith with their superior schemes of knowledge and faith. They were replacing, as we've looked at so much in this letter, they were replacing the simplicity of the good news with these ideas of superior and enhanced intellectualism. They were just, as Paul says there, they were profane and vain babblings. (laughs) They were nothing close to the truth. They were nothing in the way of what the gospel engenders. As he says there in verse 21. They have. Which some professing have erred concerning the faith. So here is Paul's charge to him. Uphold this truth. Hold it. Hold which is committed to you. Preserve it. Proclaim it. And preach it with your life. This sound doctrine of God. The healthy words of the gospel of grace. This is your supreme duty, Timothy. And such is our duty as well. This is what we have been entrusted to do in this life. As the church. We've been entrusted with this gospel. To keep it and to proclaim it. And to share it. And to stand for Christ. I think it's... Go back to verse 13 though. I just want to point this out because I find it so fascinating. That in the the middle of Timothy getting this charge from the Apostle Paul. Notice who he mentions. I give thee charge in the sight of God. Verse 13. Who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus. Who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. I find it so fascinating that of all the people that Paul mentions. He mentions Pilate. Look with me at John chapter 18 because I just want to read you that scene because I just found it so fascinating that he thought it pertinent enough what happened in this courtroom scene we might say. He found it so pertinent that he had to mention it to Timothy. Look at John 18 verse 33. Here we see Pilate Conversing with Jesus here, and look at what it says, verse 33 of John 18. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, sayest, sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice." And Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again, again unto the Jews, and saith unto them all, I find no fault at all in him. This, of course, is Pilate's testimony of who Jesus is. And later in chapter 19, he makes that interesting confession. He says, behold the man. Of course, we know that this Jesus is more than just a man. He's more than just mere flesh and blood, although he is that. And so here we see Pontius Pilate's name forever linked to an objection to the truth, all the while being in the presence of truth incarnate. He says, What is truth? And it was standing in front of him, it was standing right in his very face. And he asks, What is truth? So contrary then to Pilate's confession, so to speak, of Christ, Timothy is here is to uh, preach and hold on to cling to the truth because you are still, Timothy, in the very presence of it. Why? Because the Spirit is in you. The Spirit evidences the truth. The truth is still here. The blessed and only potentate, as Paul says back in our text, is still ministering to us. And we too are charged with making this confession. That the truth is here. Let us never shy away from it. Let us never shrink from this truth. Let us stand for it. Timothy, stand for this truth. Church, this is our calling. Stand for this gospel. Regardless of what the world says to us. Regardless of what the society wants us to preach. Stand for this truth. I love how he ends. Because as we are standing, we aren't standing alone. He says, grace be with thee." It's not just a salutary comment. Something which we can just fly over or pass on. It's the very truth of truths. That as we stand for Jesus, Christ is standing with us. That as we make this stand for his grace, his grace goes with us. Our faith is fortified as it is found in Jesus' faith for us. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the truth of the church. And this is the good news we are called to share. This is our mission as the church. Let us pray.